Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another segment of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick, and my co-host Larry Dersham and I have another great show for you. Tonight, we're talking about something that impacts all of us. And it impacts all of us no matter where we live. Although currently we're seeing a crisis on our southern border, we've also reported on similar crises all over the country. We're talking about the fentanyl crisis. Larry, I understand we have one of the nation's foremost experts on crime and justice on the line, as well as some of the danger we are currently facing in this respect. Who do we have with us? Uh, Yes, Wendy. Paul J. Larkin Jr. received his law degree from Stanford Law School and clerked for Judge Robert Bork of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Before joining Heritage in September 2011, Mr. Larkin held various positions with the federal government in Washington, D.C., and while at the U.S. Department of Justice, he argued 27 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Today, Mr. Larkin is a senior legal research fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, where he works on criminal justice, drug, and regulatory policies. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Paul, I cannot believe 27 cases argued before the Supreme Court. You must just sort of have that down to a science. Do you ever still get nervous? Well, I haven't done it in a while, uh, but I have to say when I did it, uh, the nerves went away as soon as I started. It was like playing ball. You're always nervous before the game, but after the first pitch, you're then you know, in the zone. Well, you know, Larry tells me you are a lifelong, speaking of pitches and ball, New York Yankees and New York Giants fans. Um, I, you know, I'm going to start on kind of a little bit of a light note, given that you do apparently have many other interests outside of the law. And given the very weighty, heavy issues we're going to be talking about tonight and the ones that you're involved in, how do you maintain work-life balance? I mean, talk about a question that I think we could all learn a little bit from. Well, the truth is uh, I have a great family. Uh, my wife is very understanding Amen. and takes a lot of the burden off my shoulders. Uh, and my dog loves me. So that's important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She is my BFF. Yes. Well, uh, Paul, uh, would you say our country is in the midst of an open way, opioid crisis? And if so, how bad is it? The answer is yes, in fact, two opioids, and it is very bad and about to get worse. Fentanyl is a major problem. Fentanyl is a longstanding drug used in surgery, treatment of uh, end-stage cancer pain, and people who have severe injuries, such as gunshot wounds, broken legs, and the like. Unfortunately, it has been abused. Fentanyl is... uh, 50 to 100 times as powerful as morphine. And some fentanyl derivatives, such as carfentanil, 
are thousands of times as powerful as morphine, which means a very, very small amount can prove fatal. Because what it does is not only shut down your pain receptors, it shuts down your automatic respiratory function. And as a result, you pass out and stop breathing and die. It is a very dangerous drug. And the uh, Chinese are sending it to Mexico, either in the final form or the precursor chemicals. And the Mexicans are smuggling it across the United States. So China and Mexico are a big problem in this regard. But they're not the only ones. Unfortunately, we're now out of Afghanistan, and Afghanistan is no longer going to be getting money from the U.S., at least not that we know of. And what does that mean? It means they're going to need to start funding a government, and one of the ways they're going to do it is by increasing the amount of heroin, the poppies, that are grown and exported, and that's going to make its way to the U.S. So heroin is also going to be, unfortunately, a negative consequence of our pullout from Afghanistan because we're going to see it go back up. You know, one of the, uh, let's say, issues that has bipartisan passion is keeping our community safe from, uh, from the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about prescription drugs. Uh, we're talking more about misuse of drugs that are not here legally to begin with. Um, you know, we, we talk about pulling out of Afghanistan. We talk about lots of international relations that have impacted the opioid crisis in different ways. Given the events of this last week, are there some uh, events on the international stage that have in fact impacted us negatively when it comes to controlling the flow of opioids either across our borders or within our own country? Yeah, the, what happened in the last week is only gonna aggravate an already bad situation. There are five things that the federal government, particularly the president, needs to do to address the problem you said that has bipartisan support. One is to increase interdiction and law enforcement efforts. When the Biden administration put out its priorities for preventing drug abuse, it put law enforcement as fourth of five. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the first, but it certainly can't be the fourth. And in connection with that, interdiction means dealing with the problem at the southwest border. As I said, China is sending processed fentanyl and fentanyl precursor chemicals into Mexico, and the cartels are bringing it across the southwest border, which has about all the porosity of an untended goalie net at the end of a hockey game. And the reason is the government is just waving people across. We're not really trying to do anything, even people, by the way, who are suffering from uh, COVID-19 or who've been uh, exposed to the SARS virus. The, the Biden administration is doing nothing to try to stop them from crossing the border. And that's an additional but related problem. The reason is the cartels control the flow of uh, uh, drugs across that border, and they won't let people cross if it's going to cut into their business. And in fact, they make people carry these drugs. Like I said, fentanyl and its uh, analogs are so much more powerful uh, than morphine or heroin, that it can be brought across in very small quantities, and they're controlling that. So the Biden administration has to do something to close down the southwest border. Secondly, treatment is reasonable, but by itself is not sufficient. Pe people have always said we can't arrest our way out of the drug problem. Well, we can't treat our way out of it either. We need to do both. We need to use treatment where it's appropriate, but treatment oftentimes works only one out of every five times the first time through. So we have to try to address it as a supply problem, too. 
we have to co- collaborate with the states, the localities, and the churches in this regard. Finally, there are two other things that need to happen. One is uh, the president, Joe Biden, needs to be honest with the American people. If fentanyl is pouring across the border, he's got to he's got to be honest that that's happening and explain why he's allowing it to happen. Fifth and closely related is this. He has to be a president for all Americans. He wanted to be president and he got elected. So now he has to do it. Unfortunately, he still thinks of himself as a senator trying to put together a coalition of people to pass legislation. That's not how it works. He's got to be president for the entire country, not just the Trotskyite wing of the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, that's all he's done so far. Wow. Hey, stay in on the topic of fentanyl because it, it fascinates me. I just pulled up statistics that last year in 2020, 42,700 people died from fentanyl overdoses. And the amount that it takes to kill somebody is 0.002 grams. That's, I don't know, just a couple pieces of powder, I guess. And then I saw this video uh, of this San Diego police officer who was making an arrest and there was some white powder there. And if that video was true, he fell back on his back and nearly died of an overdose until they administered an antidote. Had you seen that video at all? I I have not seen the video, but it's been explained to me. And as it was explained, you've got it exactly right. The problem is this. Take something like carfentanil, which is 30,000 times as powerful as, as morphine, okay? A half dozen grains, not grams, just a half dozen grains can be fatal to a human. Remember, they use carfentanil as a tranquilizer for elephants, so it's obvious that it's extraordinarily powerful. And the problem is this. When you buy a drug from a pharmacy that's been prescribed by a physician, you know it's been manufactured by a legitimate company using uh, the quality-approved procedures to manufacture drugs, and it's not going to be contaminated with drugs that uh, could kill you. The problem is that cartels don't, don't follow the same prescribed regimen in packaging fentanyl. In fact, they will oftentimes add fentanyl to other drugs, either to enhance the kick or because it's cheaper. Or even if they don't do it intentionally, they're not using the same manufacturing processes that legitimate uh, pharmaceutical companies do. So you can have fentanyl negligently mixed in with other drugs simply because it's processed in the same area. The result is you're going to wind up with fentanyl not being sold simply as fentanyl. You're going to have fentanyl that's going to contaminate other drugs like heroin, like cocaine, and like meth. And as a result, a small amount of fentanyl in those other drugs is going to prove fatal. For example, that's how it's reported that Prince died from having uh, fentanyl in drugs he was taking. So I don't know... Uh, why the administration hasn't been honest with the public. I don't know why the administration hasn't tried to stop the flow of uh, fentanyl across the southwest border. I can guess it's purely for political reasons. I want to thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'd love to have you back to talk more about the the subject. Um, We need to take a short break, folks, but please stick around for our next segment. You are listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. I am Wendy Patrick. We will be back in a flash. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. 
It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. So we're going to shift our focus to talking about something that has been very important over the course of the pandemic, and that's housing. That is having an affordable place to live. And this brings me to an item that has been in the news now and then, on and off, but consistently over the course of the last couple of months. And that is the federally imposed eviction moratorium. So we heard the Supreme Court weigh in recently, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, with a split, a 6-3 split, uh, talking about, and I'm going to paraphrase, who has the power? Who has the power to decide whether or not such a moratorium continues? And the two entities at issue are Congress versus the CDC. And one of the things that the court said is that if a federally imposed eviction moratorium was to continue, Congress is the entity that must specifically authorize it. We all understand why this issue is being discussed. I mean, the Delta variant is often characterized by sicker, quicker. Knowing that and knowing that the risk is higher, perhaps even than the original variant, this issue continues to be problematic. So even though we do have the Supreme Court who lifted the Biden administration's newest federal ban on evictions, um, and of course this was a bid from some of the landlords because we have to remember the landlords also haven't been getting paid, it brings us back to this, this discussion, Larry, of pandemic-related protections for the vulnerable. I, I thought it was also interesting that you know, you talk about this court opinion and you and I love talking about court cases. So we'll spare mm-hmm. our listeners getting too much into the weeds, except, except to say, I think everybody will be curious as to where does this go now, Larry? Where, where do you see now, given the Supreme Court's ruling, what's next in this whole moratorium issue? Right. It was a very interesting ruling. It was six to three uh, majority. Uh, majority and it's a per curiam decision which only means that they didn't sign the opinion because it was a fairly short opinion but there were three justices i would say the liberal wing of the supreme court that's justice Breyer, kagan and sotomayor that did write a dissenting opinion about it but what was so interesting that the first moratorium on evicting tenants uh happened well it expired on july 31st and at that point, the Supreme Court had already was going to listen to that case and make a decision, but it was ready to expire, so they left it alone. But just three days later, on uh, August 3rd, they issued another moratorium. The CDC did, mind you, not Congress, the CDC. So it really brings into question, what is the power of the uh, Centers for Disease Control? What would give them that power? Usually, landlord-tenant is a state uh, law uh, remedy. And if the landlords cannot evict their tenants, then you always have that concern because many landlords are mom-and-pop operations. Who will pay their mortgage on that building if they're not getting rent? And so it, it really comes down to a power uh, grab. Who is in control? So I'm really thankful so this, for the Supreme Court. And what's so interesting, Wendy, is that Jen Psaki said, 
okay, so the Supreme Court's made their decision. So now states, now local authorities do what you can do to make sure that this uh, moratorium on evictions continues. So it's almost as if, Wendy, they are urging the executive branch of our government uh, uh, President Biden is urging people to go around the Supreme Court ruling, which I find a little bit concerning. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, first of all, Jen Psaki's got a tough job. And I know that words matter and she has to be very careful on the way she phrases things, um, especially and, and particularly if they're, they're set on behalf of the administration. You call it a power grab. I think that's an interesting choice of words because many people at the CDC um, are good are in good faith doing what they think they have the authority to do operative word think in order to keep the public safe. Um, some of the language the court used, I couldn't help but wonder, uh, did it come with some of these sort of societal dynamics in mind? One of the things that they said um, is, of course, they said the CDC had exceeded its, its authority. I think that was one of the themes of this opinion. But I also thought it was interesting that when the Supreme Court was talking about the rationale, the reasons behind uh, some of the decisions that they were making, one of the things they said is strains credulity to believe that the statute granted the CDC the sweeping authority that it asserts. That's one of their quotes. Most people never viewed the CDC, Center for Disease Control, as having sweeping authority or as a lawmaking body or entity in any respect before the pandemic. And you have to wonder whether or not the, the pandemic and the guidance and the, the authority, quote unquote, that it was, that has been given to them to call the shot, so to speak, even if behind the scenes over the course of the last year, really has made everybody sort of uh, confused as to its lawful authority to change laws or create policy. And I don't know whether not only maybe that was behind some of the, the comments Jen Psaki made, but could that actually be behind whether or not Congress views itself and how much it views itself as involved or that it should be involved in this process moving forward? Even though the Supreme Court just said, and I'm gonna paraphrase here big time, Congress, that's your job, not the CDC. Yeah, I think it is important that the Congress uh, take that issue up should they want to go forward with the moratorium. It is not the role of the C CDC to do that. And get this, Wendy, under their most recent uh, moratorium, they were literally going to impose criminal penalties of up to $250,000 fines or one year in jail for those who violated their moratorium. I mean, where do they get that power? It's, and they were using a statute, I believe, that was uh, enacted many years ago that was for the purpose of uh, fumigation and controlling pestilence. It really didn't apply to this, but they kind of bootstrapped that statute and that authority into this. So uh, if this is going to be go forward as a moratorium, it needs to go through Congress and not through the CDC. One of the, the things this story um, really brings to light that I think has characterized other COVID stories as well is the evolution of, of science and consensus. And as that has occurred, you know, no masks, now we need masks, now this type of mask, now a bandana, now no bandana, you know, businesses are open, now they're closed, now we have the Delta variant. We've talked about different vaccination methods and pro prophylactics, and now we're talking about creating antivirals. All good, all of the above, all good. But... 
um, does or do rulings like this um, complicate or facilitate the ability of municipalities, of employers to know what kind of COVID restrictions should they impose moving forward? I think everybody hopefully will pay attention to the Supreme Court and not try to go around it. It's important that we maintain the uh, three branches of government. We control that bounce of power. And hopefully this will make them think twice about going too far with their uh, COVID regulations and mandates. So I think as we go through this whole pandemic, we're kind of going through a shakedown cruise and figuring out what works and what doesn't. And thank goodness again for the balance of power where if one branch of government goes too far out on the limb, as far as uh, their uh, edicts, they're, they're brought back in by the other, other branches of government. And so I think things are working. Yeah, you know, there's nothing in the Supreme Court ruling that that addresses one of the hottest topics of the day, which is what um, what guidelines do employers have to use in instituting vaccine mandates? Um, and obviously they can. Uh, it's a qualified yes. Can they mandate vaccines? And that qualification includes the reality that they're supposed to find reasonable accommodations for employers, for employees that have religious exemptions, medical exemptions, um, or that they're not interfacing with the public. I mean, let's face it, if you're a dental hygienist, you're going to be subjected to different workplace rules and restrictions than if you work at a remote help desk for Google and you never come into the office. Um, but having said that, the you know people wonder whether or not the CDC has even had a role in those guidelines, um, and in, you know, that brings up this whole information campaign that lots of people uh, have very different opinions as to how the First Amendment comes into play, particularly with an issue where we've seen so much difference of opinion over the course of the last year. And Larry, I mean, even difference of opinion of people on the same side as we learn more, which is a good thing about uh, about the science. I know we're coming kind of towards the end of the show, but let's kind of wrap it up with that. Is there not a First Amendment component in that people that are proponents of free speech, they see the First Amendment as more of an access to information than, than anything else. Um, combating good information with bad information uh, in order to make sure that everybody at least has all the information they need to make a decision. Right, Wendy. And here's a bit of good news. Uh, just jumping back to the vaccine mandates. This was recently released by uh, Kevin Kiley, and he's a legislator in Sacramento, that uh, AB, that's Assembly Bill 455, will not be successful at least this year. And that, that was a the vaccine mandate bill that would require everybody going to restaurants and to work. They would have to have the proof of vaccination. And so that particular bill is is no longer going to be uh, viable this year, but it could come back. So just a bit of good news there. But you're you're right, Wendy. Yeah, you know everything everything could come back. You know that's one of the things that we learn as lawyers is you know somebody says, oh great, the bill was defeated, only to then see a uh, 2.0 version of it the following year, um, which is yes. which is a good thing. Depends on I guess what the topic is. We could go on forever on this topic because we all care so deeply about it. And we will. We will continue again next weekend. So we are going to wish you a wonderful week. Please stay healthy and safe. You've been listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. Uh, Wendy Patrick and Larry Dersham here every Saturday at 6 p.m. And we look forward to seeing you next weekend. In the meantime, God bless you and have a great week.
Thank you for joining us for today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. 